0: Vasodilatory shock is the most common form of circulatory failure, and it's associated with considerable morbidity and mortality. The renin-angiotensin system plays a key role in blood pressure homeostasis, and may be an important target in the identification and treatment of shock. Joining us today is Dr. Patrick Virashevsky, who holds academic rank as an assistant professor of pharmacy and anesthesiology in Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and Science. Listen in as Dr. Viroshevsky reviews the current literature describing the renin-angiotensin system and the use of angiotensin II in the management of shock.
1: Now, I'd like to start by taking everyone back in time. Ever since high blood pressure and hypertension were first described as the disease in the 1800s, there's been a considerable interest in the renin-angiotensin system. Now, it wouldn't be until the 1930s when a group in Argentina first identified angiotensin 2. Now, back then, it wasn't called angiotensin 2, it was actually referred to as hypertensin. And this was because it was a hormone that was known to cause intractable hypertension. Now over the next 80 years, what would ensue was a tremendous amount of research focusing on suppressing this hormone. And I'm sure everyone listening to this talk, we've all been taught that angiotensin II is bad and we must suppress it. But can this molecule hold some very important information in our understanding of the opposite side of the story? And that is hypotension. Now, hopefully I'll be able to share some interesting insights with you all today that challenges our classic approach to treating shock. Now today, we'll describe the mechanisms of the renin-angiotensin system and its interplay in vasodilatory shock, we'll review the emerging data surrounding the use of angiotensin II in shock, and finally identify some clinical scenarios where angiotensin II might be of most benefit. Now, vasodilatory shock is the most common form of circulatory failure. One-third of patients that are admitted to the intensive care unit present with some form of shock. And vasodilatory shock or distributive shock accounts for two-thirds of all of these uh, shock cases. Now, sepsis is the most common reason for vasodilatory shock, but it can also be from postoperative vasoplegia, anaphylaxis, massive inflammatory response syndrome from pancreatitis, general and neuroaxial anesthetics, and also spinal cord injury in the case of neurogenic shock. And this is really a syndrome where there's a preserved or super physiologic cardiac output, but there's a fluid resistant hypotension. And really this is because there's a massive systemic vasodilation and there's low resistance in the capillaries. And so there's inadequate pressure to drive oxygenated blood at the level of the capillaries to provide the oxygen and nutrients that tissues and organs need. And this results in inadequate cellular oxygen utilization and conversion to anaerobic metabolism. Now, when there's a lack of sustainable mean arterial pressure, despite increasing dosages of one or multiple vasopressors, this rapidly progresses to refractory shock, which is truly the endpoint of treatment failure. And this state is a molecular combination of complex set of physiologic alterations that all come together. And it includes altered microcirculatory flow, membrane hyperpolarization, cellular relaxation, and vascular hyperreactivity. And we know this is bad because uh, the progressive shock results in progressive organ failure. And these are data from the CERN Health Facts database that aggregates clinical administrative data from over 700 hospitals. And these are data from Ashish Khanna's group when he's back at the Cleveland Clinic, where they included over 9,000 patients and found that hypotension exposure that was defined by the time-weighted average of a mean arterial pressure of less than 65 millimeters of mercury, that the odds of acute kidney injury increased by seven percent with it, each unit of time-weighted average of MAP less than 65. And similarly, the risk, the probability of myocardial injury also increases with increased hypotension exposure. And not only does prolonged hypotension and vasodilatory shock cause organ failure, it's also associated with an increased risk of death. And similarly, the time-weighted average mean arterial pressure less than 65, for every unit increase, there's a, over 11% odds increase in the probability of death. And the same is true for the cumulative time spent under hypotension. And so for the cumulative hours of mean arterial pressure less than 65, there's an increase in nearly 4% probability of death every two hours that's spent under this uh, time of hypotension. And so how do we treat this? How do we approach vasodilatory shock? And really the surviving sepsis campaign is the governing body for septic shock and the management of of patients with sepsis. And, And really all of our experience with, or most of the experience surrounding the treatment of vasodilatory shock comes from the sepsis population because it is the most common form of vasodilatory shock. And I've highlighted the recommendations here from the surviving sepsis campaign, where the primary recommendation for the first line agent is recommended as norepinephrine. And this is a strong recommendation. And I wanted to point out that the second line recommendation states that we suggest adding vasopressin instead of escalating the doses of norepinephrine. And I'd like to take a step back and question whether this treatment approach is appropriate or is this flawed? Because what this results in, in in clinical practice is we have a fluid resistant hypotension we introduce catecholamines such as norepinephrine, we increase the norepinephrine dose often to toxic levels, maybe then we'll add a secondary agent such as vasopressin, and then we'll add more catecholamines or more norepinephrine because we're not getting the response that we're desiring. But all the meanwhile, while this is happening at bedside titrations, the patient persistently has an inadequate perfusion pressure, there's likely catecholamine toxicity from increasing norepinephrine dosages. And there's a progressive multi-organ failure. And all of this leads to death. And we know that this approach is is flawed because when we know as the norepinephrine dose increases, the probability of in-hospital mortality also increases. And shown here very nicely, you can see once the norepinephrine dose starts to exceed 80 micrograms per minute, the risk of in-hospital mortality is in excess of 75 or 80%. And these results have been replicated by multiple groups. And you can see here that when the norepinephrine dose is in excess of 100 mics per minute or one microgram per kilogram per minute, the ICU, hospital, and 28-day mortality rates for these patients with refractory vasodilatory shock are in excess of 90%. So this is really a highly morbid and and deadly condition. But why is it that when we our natural treatment approach is to use norepinephrine in exceedingly high dosages and adding vasopressin as a secondary agent, but when we take a step back and think about the normal physiologic blood pressure homeostasis, we'll recognize that It's really three different systems that are interplaying at the same time. Of course, we have the sympathetic nervous system with catecholamines and their derivatives that increase heart rate and myocardial contractility and stimulate adrenal receptors in the vascular periphery to cause vasoconstriction. And we also have the vasopressinergic system with the posterior pituitary gland and the release of vasopressin that stimulates V1 receptors in the vascular smooth muscle. But we also have the renin and angiotensin system that stimulates aldosterone release and also activates the vasopressin and sympathetic nervous systems. And also has direct uh, activation of angiotensin type one receptor in this vascular smooth muscle to cause arterial and venous vasoconstriction. And so I'd like to focus on this third arm of the story, the angiotensin arm, because it, it seems that if we have a, natural homeostatic mechanism to maintain blood pressure, but we're ignoring it in the treatment of shock. And so if you recall, the renin-angiotensin system is really stimulated by low perfusion pressure that the juxtaglomerular cells of the kidneys sense, and this produces renin. Then angiotensinogen that comes from the liver, synthesized by the liver, is catalyzed by renin to produce angiotensin 1. Angiotensin 1 is then acted on by the angiotensin-converting enzyme, or ACE, to produce angiotensin II, which then has its downstream effects. And angiotensin II does have uh, multiple effects beyond just a pure basal constrictor. Of course, it uh, stimulates angiotensin type one receptor, which causes venous and arterial constriction, increased vascular permeability, cardiac myocyte remodeling, and of course activates the vasopressin system, which increases adrenocorticotropin hormone and activates the sympathetic nervous system. It stimulates aldosterone release and sodium and water reabsorption, and also has some platelet activation effects. So why have we not thought about this in the treatment of shock? And the reality is we have, and shown here are some papers that date back to the 60s, of clinical experience using angiotensin II in patients with pathologic shock. And this was bovine-derived angiotensin II. And in fact, angiotensin II was actually marketed in 1961 and when it was approved by the FDA for the indication of, quote, states of shock and collapse in which blood pressure must be restored with a minimum of delay to permit perfusion of vital tissues and during anesthesia, surgery, and hemodialysis. And so, why is it that through our training and uh, clinical experience, we haven't had exposure to this uh, this molecule in the treatment of shock? And actually, in the in the nineteen ninety when the company that originally marketed the drug, there were no phase uh, clinical trials that were performed. So likely when there was an acquisition of this company in the 90s, um, there there was a uh, lack of marketability of the drug. And so it was withdrawn from the market. But throughout all of these years, there's been significant experience with the use of angiotensin II. And this is a tremendous systematic review uh, from Larry Bussey's group at Emory where they identified over 1,100 studies from 1941 to 2016, where over 31,000 human subjects had received angiotensin II. Now, these were studies of all types. They spanned nearly every organ system. They even included 11 studies that were with chemotherapy and solid organ cancers. And truly, these are papers of, of multiple indications and not just treatment of shock, of course. But most commonly, the dosages that were deployed in these uh, studies were 30 nanogram per kilogram per minute or less, but the dosings were very variable. There was dosings as low as 0.05 nanogram per kilogram per minute to over 3,500 nanogram per kilogram per minute. Now, not surprisingly, an increase in blood pressure was the most frequently reported effect of angiotensin II in these studies. And not surprisingly, and, and uh, the majority of these papers were not designed for, or did they report safety? But some uh, emerging themes that came out were cough and chest tightness and asthmatics. There was exacerbation of left ventricular heart failure. But overall, angiotensin II appeared to be well tolerated uh, from these 1,100, or 1,100 studies. And it was really Mink Chala's group at George Washington University that, that started to revitalize the clinical application of angiotensin-2 in, in shock. And this is in, in uh, 2014, they, they, they published the ATHOS Pylo study in which they randomized 20 patients to placebo or angiotensin-2 for a period of six hours. Now this was a dose finding study to to test what the uh, adequate dose would be for treating refractory vasodilatory shock. So they randomized patients to receive 20 nanogram per kilogram per minute. That was then titrated for a goal mean arterial pressure of 65 or greater. And like I said, the, the drug was infused for six hours. And the primary endpoint was the effect on the background vasopressor dose. And what they found was when applied to refractory vasodilatory shock patients with norepinephrine doses of 20 to 25 micrograms per kilogram, or microgram per minute, angiotensin II significantly reduced the background norepinephrine dose for the duration of the six hours that it was infused. And when the study drug finished, there was a rebound back to the baseline norepinephrine dose. And from these data, the phase three clinical trial, the ATHOS three trial was designed. Now this was a multinational randomized double-blind placebo controlled trial that included 344 patients. They enrolled patients with refractory vasodilatory shock and they defined this by uh, having received 25 milliliter per kilogram of fluid bolus and still had a mean arterial pressure of 50 to 70. Now, these patients had to have a cardiac a satisfactory cardiac index of greater than 2.3, a central venous oxygen saturation of greater than 70%, and a CVP greater than 8, and a baseline norepinephrine equivalent of at least 0.2 microgram per kilogram per minute. The bottom line is they had to ensure that these patients did not have hypovolemic shock, that they did not have cardiogenic shock. And what they did is they randomized patients to receive angiotensin II or placebo with the dosing schema listed here. Now, the population is quite what you would expect in a standard intensive care unit uh, for vasodilatory shock. The majority of these patients had sepsis, but there were also some patients with pancreatitis, vasoplegia, and about 3% of patients had multifactorial shock. Now, importantly, these patients had a baseline Apache 2 score of approximately 28, and this predicts a baseline mortality probably around 50 percent. Vasopressin was used in approximately 70 percent of the patients if it was available at the study site, and the baseline vasopressor dose at the time the study drug was administered was about 0.34 microgram per kilogram per minute. Now, the primary endpoint was achievement of a mean arterial pressure of at least 75 or a change in mean arterial pressure of 10 at the hours following study drug. Now, what they found was 70% of patients that received angiotensin II achieved the primary endpoint versus 23% in the placebo arm. Now, this was uh, an odds ratio of nearly eight for the angiotensin II arm. And shown here, the angiotensin-2 recipients over the first three hours had a robust increase in their mean arterial pressure and a steady reduction in their background norepinephrine dose that was greater than those that received placebo. Now, one common criticism of the ATHOS-3 trial is that there was a lack of a mortality benefit that was demonstrated from angiotensin-2. Now, it's important to remember that the ATHOS-3 trial was designed as a phase three approval trial in conjunction with the FDA. And because the, the drug was going to be marketed, the FDA required that the study that was going to be used for the marketing demonstrated that the drug indeed had the mechanism of action that was being proposed, and that was as a vasopressor. And therefore, the primary endpoint was a hemodynamic endpoint, and the study was not powered for mortality, although there was a small separation in the mortality uh, curve that favored angiotensin II. And so following the ATHOS Three trial, uh, there's been a number of post-marketing experiences where we've gained some additional knowledge about the use of angiotensin II at the bedside. And we performed a multi-center post-marketing study where we included 270 patients from five major academic medical centers in the US. And really we included all comers receiving angiotensin II. And our primary objective of doing this study was to really understand how the adoption um, in the post-marketing setting was of of this vasoconstrictor. And we also wanted to assess a primary hemodynamic endpoint to see uh, who was responding to angiotensin 2, and we defined this as a mean arterial pressure of at least 65 at three hours following the study drug with a stable or a reduced background vasopressor dose, and we use this definition on the assumption that in real clinical practice, the vasopressors would be escalating when the decision was made to add angiotensin 2, and therefore, a stabilization in this escalation would demonstrate a positive um, a positive uh, effect. Now, these patients, uh, approximately half of them had sepsis, but there was a large majority of these patients, uh, over a quarter of them had multifactorial shock. The baseline Apache score and was 30 and SOFA was 12, and so these patients were severely ill. This predicts a baseline mortality risk of pro- around 80%. The lactate concentration at baseline was 7.5. Vasopressin was used in the majority of patients, and most patients were receiving three vasopressors before they received angiotensin II. And the baseline vasopressor dose, uh, cumulative vasopressor dose that they were receiving was nearly 0.6 micrograms per kilogram per minute. Now these patients were gravely ill. It included Three-quarters of the patients had acute kidney injury before they received angiotensin II, and 40% of them were already receiving continuous dialysis at the time they received angiotensin II. But there was a clear separation in the patients that were responders to angiotensin II, and in fact, 6-7% of patients were hemodynamic responders to angiotensin 2. And these hemodynamic responders had an increase in mean arterial pressure of 10 points at three hours following angiotensin II. And accompanied with that was a reduction in the background vasopressor dose by 0.2 microgram per kilogram per minute, about one-third reduction in their background vasopressor dose. And these were significantly greater than those that were non-responders through six hours. Now, we wanted to really understand why these patients were Uh, so well responding to angiotensin II, and so we fit a multivariable model, and a couple of trends emerged. Those receiving vasopressin were six-fold more likely to respond to angiotensin II hemodynamically than those who were not, and those with a lower lactate concentration at angiotensin II receipt were also more likely to respond to the treatment. But I think what surprised us the most was the survival uh, difference in those who responded and non-responded. And patients who were hematomic responders were twice as likely to survive at 30 days compared to those that did not respond. Susan Smith's group from University of Georgia also performed a multi-center post-marketing study where they included 162 patients from from several sites. They also had all comers of angiotensin II, They measured a primary human anemic endpoint, three hours of the mean difference in the mean arterial pressure and the background vasopressor dose. These patients were similarly very ill. Uh, Nearly three quarters of them had a shock due to sepsis, but there was also a large proportion that um, had non-septic distributive shock and even 20% with cardiogenic shock. These patients had baseline Apache 4s of 90 and were on three vasopressors with a cumulative background vasopressor dose of 0.55 microgram per kilogram per minute at the time they received the tube. So again, a very sick population. They found that the median time to hemodynamic response was just 16 minutes following the initiation of the infusion. And these patients at three hours had a increase in their mean arterial pressure of 9.3 millimeters of mercury, and also a reduction in norepinephrine dose of 0.16 microgram per kilogram per minute at three hours. And what I found most interesting about their study was there was a greater vasopressor sparing effect when the background vasopressor dose was lower at the time of angiotensin II initiation. And they di- dichotomized the background vasopressor dose at 0.2 and at 0.3. And at both of these cutoffs, the um, reduction in the background vasopressor dose was greater if the background vasopressor dose was less. And this was uh, more so for 0.2, but it also held true for those with less than 0.3 mics per minute of norepinephrine. And so where does this leave us with potentially attractive candidates for the use of angiotensin II? Potentially lower lactate concentrations uh, and receipt of vasopressin that we've we've seen from the post-marketing experience and also potentially lower baseline vasopressor requirement. And it leaves a few questions, uh, whether or not this treatment could be better in patients with less severe shock. Now there's no studies that have been designed to to, uh, answer this question. But potentially more importantly, visibilatory shock really occurs on a spectrum of characteristics and the underlying conditions vary greatly. And so all of these patients present with a similar phenotype of macrocircuitary shock, uh, uh, or their you know, mean arterial pressure is low, but it brings up the question if there's specific physiologic derangements that might explain these hemodynamic responders. And furthermore, are there biologic endotypes that we can identify to better t- tailor the treatment and targeted use of angiotensin II? And a couple of years after the ATHOS pilot study was published, the authors published this very um, interesting editorial. And this was after they were able to unblind the patients when the study was already published. They identified two patients out of the 10 that received angiotensin II had a profound response to angiotensin II in the study. And these patients completely separated from 0.3 mics per kilo per minute of norepinephrine very soon after starting angiotensin II. And they remained hypertensive despite discontinuation of norepinephrine, requiring a down titration of angiotensin II to the lowest allowed study dose, which was five nanogram per kilogram per minute. And at the end of the x-hour treatment um, duration, when angiotensin II was discontinued, these patients had rebound hypotension and they required resumption of high-dose norepinephrine. And so why is it that these patients respond to such low doses of angiotensin II? And can we really gather some insight from the dosing that's been used in clinical studies? And if you recall the ATHOS studies, had a starting dose of 20 nanogram per kilogram per minute with titrations from five um, upwards of 80 nanogram per kilogram per minute and all different dosing schema listed here. In the post-marketing experience, the doses are highly variable. Most of the patients, many of the patients actually didn't achieve the maximum dosing rates that were uh, achieved in, in clinical trial and very interestingly, approximately 15% of the patients in, in our post-marketing study didn't have any titration of the drug. And so some very interesting data have emerged from the ATHOS-3 trial in the post hoc setting. And shown here are patients that uh, were included in the ATHOS-3 trial that were hyper-responders to antensin 2. These patients required down titration of norepinephrine at 30 minutes to five nanogram per kilogram per minute or less because they were such hyper responders. And these patients um, had an odds ratio of nearly 8.5 compared to those receiving higher doses of angiotensin II for the primary human endpoint. And what's really interesting is when the survival curve is plotted of the patients that, rec- that required down titration of angiotensin II, they were more likely to survive compared the, to those that required higher doses of angiotensin II in the Athos3 trial. And the investigators uh, measured angiotensin II serum concentrations on these patients at baseline before they received the study drug. And what's very interesting is that the baseline angiotensin II concentrations were significantly, um, hot, lower, I'm sorry, in the patients that required low doses of angiotensin-2. And when we really look at the full ATHOS-3 um, study patients and their serum angiotensin-1 and angiotensin-2 concentrations, what we'll quickly see is that there is an imbalance in the angiotensin-1 and angiotensin-2 concentrations at baseline. And you'll quickly notice that the ratio of the angiotensin 1 to 2 is nearly 3, suggesting that there's far more angiotensin 1 than angiotensin 2 in these patients at baseline. And this is a huge difference compared to healthy volunteers that have a ratio of just 0.4 at baseline. And when the angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2 concentration is dichotomized at the study median, which was approximately 1.6, the patients with the higher ratio had a higher probability of death in the Athos 3 trial. So, again, these are patients that have the imbalance of more angiotensin 1 than angiotensin 2 are less likely to survive, regardless of the treatment that they received in the study. And so, why is this? Let's think back to the renin angiotensin system and recall that um, renin is catalyzing the conversion into angiotensin 1, which is then converting uh, to angiotensin 2 by the ACE enzyme. And what we're seeing here is this imbalance where there's more angiotensin 1 and low angiotensin 2. And so what this probably represents is a defect in the conversion capacity of ACE. And therefore, angiotensin 1 is not being converted into angiotensin 2, which then cannot activate the angiotensin type 1 receptor and produce downstream vasoconstrictive effects. This then produces a state where there is low perfusion pressure, which again stimulates more renin to produce more angiotensin 1 to, again, not only not produce angiotensin-2. So why can't we just measure angiotensin-1 and angiotensin-2 concentrations? Well, it's a bit more challenging than it sounds. These are very large peptides and they require very special handling when they're collected. They have to be analyzed on special columns. And it's really more uh, meant for research purposes rather than clinical bedside use, but can renin serve as a surrogate to potentially replace the need to measure angiotensin one and two concentrations? Now, this is a very fascinating study from Jean-Louis Vincent's group in Brussels, where they did a prospective study of twenty patients. These patients were were really a mixed U. They had varying shock states and there was even a third of them that did not have shock. And they measured renin levels at various time points in these patients' ICU stay. And what they found was that renin was inversely correlated with mean arterial pressure. And probably most importantly, they found that renin was not affected by diurnal variation, continuous dialysis, or medications that you might expect, such as those that affect the adrenergic cascades. And they found that at every time point, renin outperformed lactate in predicting ICU mortality. Now, the renin concentrations were higher in those that died compared to those that survived. And in the receiver operator curve for ICU mortality, renin was significantly more likely to predict ICU mortality compared to lactate. And these results were somewhat replicated by John Chow's group at the University of Maryland, where they included mixed hypotensive patients that required vasopressors for at least six hours. And what they found was that the change in renin significantly predicted the mortality in these patients, while lactate did not. You can see here that at every time point, when a cutoff of the upper limit of normal of renin of 40 picogram per milliliter uh, was uh, plotted, there was a greater number of patients that were deceased with the higher uh, renin levels. And so how can we apply this to the treatment of visibility shock and the use of angiotensin II? Well, if we look, at, look back at the ATHOS-3 trial, and again, these are post hoc data, I showed before the angiotensin-1 to angiotensin-2 ratios in these patients. And when we dichotomized the population based on the baseline renin concentration, which was 173 picogram per milliliter, those patients with low renin concentrations had a low ang-1 to ang-2 ratio and it was closer to that of healthy individuals. But those with a high renin that was greater than the population median of 173, they are the patients that have this imbalance of one to ang2 with a ratio of three. And indeed, when when you plot the baseline ang1 to ang2 ratio, there's a significant positive correlation with the baseline renin. So as the ang1 to ang2 ratio increases, the baseline renin also increases. And and physiologically, we would expect this to happen. But probably what's most intriguing about these data is when you plot survival based on the baseline renin concentration. And shown here is the survival curves of angiotensin II and placebo recipients for low renin concentrations at baseline. And you can quickly see that there is no difference in the survival regardless of the intervention that was given when the baseline renin was low. But when the baseline renin is high, the patients that received angiotensin 2 were nearly twice as likely to survive at 28 days compared to those that received placebo. And if you look at the survival curve carefully, you'll notice that at just one week, 50% of the patients with low or high renin that received placebo were dead at just one week after its enrollment. Compared to angiotensin II recipients where 50% of them were still alive at 28 days. So how can we use this to rationalize approach and really understand the consequences of these defects in in the renin-angiotensin system? And so again, we have this state where we have high angiotensin one, We have the inability to convert to angiotensin two, which then stimulates the production of renin again. But one very important piece of information that is often forgotten about about the renin and angiotensin system is the secondary cascade that occurs. And so when there's an increase in angiotensin one, and the inability to catalyze the conversion to angiotensin II. This system shifts to the non-classical Ras pathway, which includes the angiotensin converting enzyme 2 and neprilysin, which both convert angiotensin I into angiotensin 1-9 and angiotensin 1-7, which then go on and act on the mass receptor, the angiotensin type 2 receptor, and are really profoundly vasodilatory. And of course, ACE also catalyzes the the breakdown of bradykinin into its uh, metabolites. And so when ACE is not present in the bradykinin pathway, we have an increase in bradykinin, which then again, further potentiates this state of vasodilation. And this is problematic because uh, all of this vasodilation then stimulates the kidneys to produce more renin which then produces more angiotensin 1, which again perpetuates this pathway of the production of vasodilatory by, byproducts of the renin and angiotensin system. So how can we target the ACE enzyme and really understand how to better use angiotensin 2? And we have to take a step back and, and look at where the ACE enzyme lives. And the ACE en- And the angiotensin converting enzyme is a capillary bound uh, endothelial enzyme. It's an ectoenzyme that lives primarily in the pulmonary capillary endothelium. And this is where ACE performs all of its activity in the conversion of angiotensin-1 to angiotensin-2. And we know this, and because when, uh, this is a very uh, nice study that included patients with the acute respiratory distress syndrome, uh, mainly patients with trauma, but there were a number of patients with sepsis and pneumonia. And what these authors did is they measured the ACE activity and they estimated this by variables called V, which was the transpulmonary hydrolysis of a synthetic ACE substrate and also the A max over the Km, which was an index of the functional capillary surface area of enzyme that was available for reaction. And what they found was when the lung injury score increased, the ACE activity decreased. And so, we, so why does ACE impairment happen, and can we identify the patients that have high renin? And so again, it lives in the pulmonary capillary endothelium. So we have to think about pathologic states that disrupt this um, uh, endothelial uh, enzyme. And there's a number of things, and this could include sepsis, trauma, toxins, inflammation, um, any type of really respiratory failure that that damages the pulmonary uh, uh, capillary beds. This then leads, of course, to endothelial dysfunction, which then leads to impaired uh, synthetic capacity of angiotensin-converting enzyme. And what I've shown here is the baseline renin concentration in various populations. And so normal individuals have baseline renins that are very low. These are on the order of anywhere from 2 to 30 or, or even 40 picogram per milliliter. Patients with hypertension can have renin levels um, upwards of hundred. And the data data from the renin analysis from Jean-Louis Vincent's group, patients without AKI and with septic AKI from their study that where most of them had shock, these patients had renin concentrations um, in the hundreds upwards to a thousand. And finally, the patients in the Athos 3 trial, these are patients that had refractory vasodilatory shock that were requiring high dose norepinephrine. These patients had renin concentrations that were upwards of six and 7,000 at baseline. So clearly, there are subsets of patients that have this ACE dysfunction that produces high renin. And these are likely the patients that have. The most uh, likely benefit from receiving angiotensin II in the treatment of shock. And so, where do we go from here? You know, we we try to conceptualize and rationalize this idea of early multi- multimodal vasopressors. And what what we call attention to is a greater focus on rapid restoration of organ perfusion. Again, if we only target one of the three arms of natural blood pressure homeostasis uh, that is the sympathetic nervous system with catecholamines and we don't have the response that we're desiring. We have an increased likelihood of exposure to hypotensive states and progressive multi failure and death. And so we sh- does this uh, bring forth a potential for broad spectrum vasopressors. And this is a concept that has been uh, suggested by others in the literature, pretty analogous to the treatment of sepsis. Patients with sepsis present with suspected infection. We collect some cultures, take some tests. We start broad spectrum antibiotics with the intent of targeting uh, the most likely bacteria or pathogens that the patient might have. And then once the information comes back from the culture data, we streamline the antibiotics to the infection the patient has. And so can we move forward and get to a state where we do this with vasopressors, where a patient presents with hypotension, we collect some labs, run some biomarker tests, We start the patient on broad-spectrum vasopressors, where the primary objective is restoration of the hemodynamic status, rather than a stepwise approach where we risk these states of prolonged hypotension. And then once the patient is stabilized and we receive the results from our biomarkers, we can streamline the vasopressors to the specific shock type the patient has. But in order to do this, we really need a better classification of the biologic endotypes of patients with shock. We need more point-of-care biomarker assays that are ready for bedside use. And likely most importantly, we need to develop a personalized vasopressor approach because it's clear from these data and our experience with norepinephrine and vasopressin, that there are specific subsets that respond to different treatments, and there is not one vasopressor that fits everyone. And so I'd like to pause here to bring our first uh, audience question. And so prolonged inadequate restoration of arterial hypotension in vasodilatory shock leads to which of the following? Is it A, acute kidney injury, B, myocardial injury, C, multiple organ failure, D, death, or E, all of the above. And this would be all of the above. Prolonged inadequate um, restoration of hypotension and shock leads to progressive multiple organ failure and, of course, death. Next is angiotensin II might be beneficial in treating high renin shock by A, reducing angiotensin converting enzyme or ACE, B, suppressing the production of vasodilatory angiotensin byproducts, or C, increasing bradykinin. Now this would be B, suppressing production of vasodilatory angiotensin byproducts. So again, we have increased renin, which results in high angiotensin one concentrations, which provides a lot of substrate for the non-classical RAS pathway, which produces these vasodilatory byproducts. Now, reducing ACE would would further uh, potentiate this uh, state of hypotension, and increasing bradykinin would also uh, produce more hypotension and further perpetuate this negative feedback pathway. And finally, you would expect a patient with high renin shock that is high ANG1 to ANG2 ratio to have the best response and outcome when given angiotensin II. Is this statement true or false? Now, this would be true. So again, we have a state of high renin production. So the juxtaglomerular cells are sensing low perfusion pressures and producing a lot of renin. And if there's an ACE defect, we have a high ANG1 to ANG2 ratio because we're unable to do the conversion. And these are the patients that have uh, marked response in the post-marketing setting to receipt of angiotensin 2 and have been associated with survival benefits. So in conclusion, angiotensin 2 is a synthetic vasopressor that leverages the renin-angiotensin system during hypotension, and it's labeled for use in distributive shock. The early post-marketing setting suggests that there's a subset of patients that markedly responds to angiotensin II with a rapid mean arterial pressure restoration and reduction in background vasopressor dose with an accompanying survival benefit. Now, Renin might serve as a surrogate marker to identify patients with a derangement in the endogenous renin-angiotensin system capabilities, and therefore be more likely to benefit from angiotensin II treatment.
0: If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.